And we got a great God. He's amazing. He is good. And he is here amongst us. And so, man, my name is Pastor Andrew, and I'm the student pastor here. I'm excited to be here with you all. We love you guys. Pastor Mike will be back next week. He wanted me to tell you he misses you. He loves you. He got back from Israel, I believe, on Friday. But he took a well-deserved weekend off. And so pray for him to rest up, because you know when he comes back from a break, there's a lot of fire and, and roaring that comes from our Pastor Mike. Amen? It's an amazing thing. And so, hey, I'm here to preach. And so let's go to Luke chapter 19. Uh, we're going to jump into a wee little story. I want to read it first, give us a context. Then we're going to pray, and then we're going to go through it verse by verse. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. It's one of those stories that we are totally familiar with. We have children's songs about it. We think we know it. And then you look at it again and you're like, holy smokes, like Jesus is amazing. And like my, my perceptions of, of what God is like and his attitude towards us is just shattered. And so I'm gonna pray that that's our heart today and my heart. Um, but let's jump into the text. <clears throat> Luke chapter 19. Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, check it out. There's a man named Zacchaeus and he was chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down, hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. King Jesus, we know that your mission very clearly is to seek and save the lost. We know that you are not done in that, that you are after the outcast, that you are against the murmuring crowd, and you want to restore us to being that spiritual son of Abraham to live out of that identity. And so I pray right now that we would all be quiet to what your spirit is doing, that I would say exactly what you would have me say and that you would have a movement in this church that starts in our hearts and ends with our actions. We love you and we ask this all in the name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, can you imagine being judged by your worst moments in life? Like the trajectory of your life is now based upon a single moment when you failed. For example, maybe in third grade, you were a chip thief. You're walking through the racetrack and you saw some delicious Lay's potato chips and you snagged them and booked it. You ran and guess what? Forevermore, you are labeled the chip thief. And you were an enemy of the state. You were unlovable, no longer worthy of trust. You are the enemy. That'd be ridiculous, right? There's no way. But I would also argue in a lot of ways, our biggest mistakes do change the trajectory of our life and they can change our identity, the way that we see ourselves. And maybe it's even as simple as you made a joke that was inappropriate one time and before you know it, everyone expects you to be the raunchy joke guy. 
Or maybe one time you're a little bit bitter or sarcastic and before you know it, your defense mechanism of being hard and cold rather than loving and compassionate like you wanna be becomes your core identity. I don't know about you, but I've had moments in my life when I walk away from a conversation and I'm like, why was I like that? I don't like who I am, but you feel trapped in on that identity. Or maybe you've just got a hot mess of a past and that feels like your identity and then you go to religious people and what do they do? They say, you know what? I'm not sure I want you in our club. I'm not sure that you're fit. You don't have the right haircut and the looks and the attitude and the swagger. You've got a past and we're trying to clean ourselves up here. I'm not sure you belong. And more often than not, the religious folk can get in the way of Jesus working in people's lives. And maybe you're here and you just have, you're struggling to live out your identity. Well, this is the story of Zacchaeus, but in a much more meaningful way, this is the story of each one of us. And so let's jump into the text today and see what it looks like to become more like Jesus. Because you see, the answer is this. The answer is not try harder. The answer is not just do the right things. You see, in order to have life transformation, we need to first be with Jesus. We need to see his attitude towards the outcast, and through that moment with Jesus, then we become, we become like Jesus. And then after we become more and more like Jesus, then we can do what Jesus did. Then we can act like Jesus acted, but it's really hard. We can't fake it till we make it. We have to know Jesus's attitude towards the world and towards us. And so we're gonna see in 10 short verses what this looks like. And maybe you're here and you're a seasoned saint. I would even argue that maybe even you may struggle with believing what your savior declares about your identity rather than what the world murmurs about who you are. And I think all of us need a reminder on who we are And then further, I think that the moment of Zacchaeus coming to Jesus with joy is a great reminder. I love doing what I do because I get to be a part of that joy. When the outcast has joy coming back to Jesus, that return moment, that is beautiful. And I wanna be part of that. And so let's look at the text now and see what it looks like to celebrate that joy with the outcast. Luke chapter 19, verse one. He entered Jericho and he was passing through. For our story, it's really important to know that Jericho was a major trade route between Perea and Judea, east to west, and so a lot of items, guess what? Get taxed as they go through. Verse two, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Okay, a lot of thoughts here. There's a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. A little bit of history would help here. Back in the time of King David, the kingdom was united, right? We had all of Israel was one beautiful plot of land. It was under great leadership and people were following Yahweh God. There was worship, there was festivals, it was great. And then Solomon was born and then he messed it up. And then his descendants eventually had a divided kingdom with Israel to the north and Judea to the south. Well, after many years and many bad kings, all of a sudden the Assyrian army wanted to expand. They came and they destroyed Israel, took it right off the map. And so now the Assyrian army is to the north. Judea is hanging on by a thread and they make it for several more years. But then the prophet Jeremiah tells us the people continue to sin. And so God called the king of Babylon to come and wipe out uh, the southern kingdom Judea. It's taken out and the people of God are like, what is going on? We were in slavery in Egypt and now we're being taken over by these tyrannical, evil, cynical, bad nations. 
Like we thought we're the people of God. What is going on? Well, the Medo-Persian empire then takes over the known world. And then, you know, centuries later, all of a sudden, Alexander the Great marches in and conquers the known world for the Greeks. Not long after that comes the Romans. And essentially, the people of Israel are pummeled again and again and again. And even though they have some rights to serve God, they also are still subjugated to these evil, tyrannical nations. And how are these wars funded? Through taxes, right? Now, who here loves paying taxes? Anybody? You are crazy. Anybody go to the mailbox and you pull out the envelope? You're like, yes. Baby, we're getting the audit. Let's go party. No, that never, ever, ever happened. That's never a good moment. Well, it's also not a good moment in the ancient world, but I want you to multiply that by a thousand because the tax collector in Israel was an enemy of the state. They were supporting the Romans, literally supporting the Roman war machine, which was keeping them captive in their own cities. And further, these tax collectors had the authority to extort and demand more money and more taxes than what they were allowed to do. And so a tax collector wasn't just an enemy of the state for supporting the Romans. They were evil because your neighbors and your friends and the widow down the street had no money left after a greedy tax collector came through. And so the picture that he's trying to paint, that Luke's painting here, is that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, not just a lowly guy. He is a boss, high-level, authority tax collector, and he was rich. He is the sinner supreme. But Jesus entered Jericho and is walking around. What is going to happen? Let's find out. Verse three, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. He's seeking to see who Jesus is. Why? Why do you think a guy like Zacchaeus cares to see Jesus? It's a really interesting question that we have to ponder. What is it that he's running from? What is it that Jesus has to offer a guy like Zacchaeus? It's a really good question. Maybe Zacchaeus was sick of living as the chief sinner and he wanted a fresh start. Maybe he he knew that everyone around him hated him, but Jesus had a reputation for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Maybe, just maybe, he thought, I can get a fresh start with Jesus. I've got to know what this guy is like. And in the original language, emphasis is put on who Jesus is, the living, breathing, moving God in a body walking amongst the people. He needs to know who this Jesus is. Now, interestingly enough, the text actually doesn't necessarily say who is small in stature. Do you know this? Both in the original language and the English, it's a little bit ambiguous. Here we go. He, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he, Zacchaeus, could not because he, question mark, was small in stature. It could be that Zacchaeus is a little bit shorter and so he can't see into the crowd to see Jesus, or it could be that he, Jesus, was shorter and he could be seen in the crowd. The truth is we don't know. Now in the flow of the text, it seems like it's Zacchaeus just by the energy there, so don't write me emails, don't get mad, okay? But it's very possible that Jesus was actually shorter. We do know this, he was not some tall, skinny, blue-eyed dude with hippie long hair, right? 
he was actually probably closer to five, five and a half feet. That's what the average Jewish person was. If you look at archaeology, they're not a super tall race of people, especially in the ancient world. And um, he, I mean, he, he probably had great hair, probably had a mullet, I don't know. But um, regardless, Jesus was definitely not the image. We need to get that picture out of our head. And we also need to have fresh eyes of the scriptures, don't we? We can't just assume that we have a children's story teach us theology. We need to look what the Bible is actually teaching. And so here comes Jesus, and here comes Zacchaeus. And he's small in stature, so verse four, he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree um, to see him, for he was about to pass that way. The sycamore tree is a sycamore fig. It's a very common tree in the, in the um ancient Near East, and even today you can find them. It's similar to our oak tree. It's easy to climb. Now, it's really important to know this. This was a major social faux pas for Zacchaeus to run ahead of the crowd and then for him to climb up in a tree would not be a normal thing. I want you to imagine today that you're leaving the church and you look and there's some parking guys up in a tree waving goodbye to you. <laughs> it would be like, what are you doing? This is, this is, it'd be odd, right? By the way, it's hot out. Can we thank our parking guys for serving the Lord? Come on, they are awesome, man. They keep us safe and it's blisteringly hot outside. We love you guys. But imagine for real, you're driving along and he's like, goodbye. And you're like, who said that? And you look up and there's a parking guy in a tree. It would be odd. In the same way Zacchaeus is sprinting ahead of the crowd, there's an urgency in his heart. Do you see this? He is running ahead to get a look at Jesus. Now, I think there's actually something really important here. Millard Erickson, a guy who wrote a book called Christian Theology says this. The gospel writers were not concerned to dwell on aspects of Jesus' life and sayings that were not significant for faith, meaning that they leave some obvious things out. But I think that there are some things that they would assume that we would get. I think there are things that they would say, this is an obvious thing. For example, the likability of Jesus. I think is an under-preached character trait of what Jesus is like. I think he is incredibly likable. Why else are sinners attracted to him? Notice it's the opposite today, that, that it's Christians and religious people that are very comfortable with Jesus, but then sinners are far from him. When in the ancient world, guess who was hanging out with Jesus? It was the sinners and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were uncomfortable being around Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, a lot of us struggle with an imaginary Jesus that's not real, a figment of our own imagination and not the real historic true Jesus of the universe, Amen. I wanna challenge you to make sure that you don't get too comfortable with your vision of him and you need always going back to what the scriptures teach. But why is he running? Maybe, maybe not just to escape discomfort. How many of you would say that you only run to Jesus? Don't raise your hand. How many of you run to Jesus only when you are in discomfort? Maybe you only run to Jesus when you have anxiety or you're stressed about cash or you are in some sin. When's the last time you ran ahead just to get a glimpse of Jesus? You see, I think a lot of us, if we're honest, like to run to Jesus for his benefits, but not knowing him personally and intimately and truly. Jesus is amazing. Just to sit in his presence, to be under his teaching, to grow with him. But for some reason, we're like, man, I just want the cosmic vending machine Jesus, and that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Even in the, in, the, in the ancient world, people would be like, Jesus, you made a bunch of food and bread and fish earlier. Can I get in on that? You know, or Jesus, you healed someone's daughter. Can I hang out with you? But Zacchaeus, he just wants a glimpse of Jesus. 
And I actually think that's the kind of worshiper that Jesus is looking for, those who are just getting after the Lord, wanting to experience him. If you're here today and you've only pursued Jesus because of his benefits, escape from hell, escape from the wrath of God, man, that's a shame. You are missing out on the fruit of being in relationship with the God of the universe. You are missing out. So chapter, verse five, excuse me. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Can you imagine now? Zacchaeus is climbing up into the tree. I'm sure branches are waving and flopping every which way. The crowd looks up and they're like, oh, it's you. It's Zacchaeus, enemy of the state, the guy who just ripped off that widow down the street. And they're already sighing. Jesus is walking by, but notice he doesn't pass by. He looks up and he stops and he noticed him. This is a very important word. He noticed Zacchaeus. Maybe you're here today and you don't think that God notices you. I want you to know that couldn't be further from the truth. In the Old Testament, when Abraham and Sarah had a birthday party for their chosen son, Isaac, Ishmael and his mom were driven into the wilderness by the crazy Sarah in that moment. And she's off in the wilderness getting ready to die. She's putting her son beneath a tree because she doesn't want to hear him screaming as he has no water. And she marches off a bow shot away because she can't bear the thought of her child dying. And you know what happens? God hears the boy's cry. God sees her situation. And he says, hey, there's water up here. Let's go. And he, he takes them by the hand and leads them. And she says, you are the God who sees because God sees your situation. Maybe you're here and you're like Elijah when he had faced off on Mount Carmel, this great God moment, and then skip a few verses and you're running for your life from Jezebel who wants to kill you and you're regretting even being born. He's like, man, I wish I wasn't even born. He's like running for his life. And then what does God come and do? He's like, hey, take a nap, eat some food. Take another nap, eat some more food. By the way, great spiritual advice, right? Take a nap, naps are holy, okay? And he takes a nap, eats some food, and then he speaks to him in a quiet, still voice, and he leads him by. He noticed, he noticed him. Or think about Peter when he's falling in the water after locking eyes of Jesus, he gets distracted by the waves, he starts to sink, and what does he do? Jesus reaches up and notices and grabs him and pulls him up. God notices you. Jesus is likable and God notices you. These are basics of our theology, but they are so easily forgotten. Whatever your situation is, man, today, God notices you. He did not pass by. And then I want you to notice what he says. Hurry and come down. Come down is a command. It's an imperative in the original. But he also says, hurry, come down quickly. And then he says, I must stay or it is necessary for me to stay at your house today. He says, I want to remain with you. I want to abide with you. I want to be in your space, which is absolutely bonkers. Remember, hated enemy of the people. The people are about to murmur and complain. And he says, I want to be with you. Can you feel the urgency in his voice? Not just come down, but come down quickly. And it's necessary for me to abide and to remain with you. Jesus saw his visit to hang out with Zacchaeus as part of his divine mission. There is nothing random about this moment. This is a God-initiated moment for Zacchaeus and Jesus to hang out. I want you to notice this too. This is a really important part of our theology that we glance over. Jesus is kind to Zacchaeus. And we're gonna talk about this more later, but it's a simple thought. Jesus is really, really kind to Zacchaeus. I must stay at your, your place today. In the ancient world, sharing a meal or visiting someone's house was a collaboration and acceptance. But I've got a question for you. 
Is Jesus accepting Zacchaeus' sin when he has a meal with him? Let's, let's say it louder for the people in the back. No, is he, is he equating hanging out with him as agreeing with their lifestyle? No, there's a myth today that for you to accept and value someone, you must agree with everything that they say about themselves. That's bogus, okay? There's, that's absolutely not a truth at all. At the same time, I would argue that Jesus didn't have to say, hey Zacchaeus, I'm gonna come to your house today, but first I want you to know that you're a tax collector and I disagree with your lifestyle. And so for us to be friends, we gotta like, you need to know this about me. Did he do that at all either? No, he's going to hang out with a sinner. Should Christians hang out with sinners? Yeah, should they be your best friends? Probably not. I, I give advice to students all the time. I say if your closest five friends should be believers, those are the people that are gonna impact your life the most. But then beyond that, you should have some friends who are wrestling through what it means to follow Jesus. Who are, who, and by the way, was he going alone to this guy's house? Probably not. He had his buddies with him. So don't think you're gonna go in a single soldier to save the wicked and hang out with them in their place. No, no, no. Bring your buddies with you and go on a mission to love the lost just like Jesus did. And so I'd encourage you that, that he, he's not condoning the sin, but he is going to love first. Um, something I love about Jesus, he's repeatedly showing value and then challenging to come to repentance. And that order is very, very important. When he talks to Nicodemus at night, he's, he values him and then he corrects his theology. When he talks to the woman at the well, he values her and, and respects her and then he says, hey, by the way, where's your husband? And he challenges her. When he talks to the woman caught in adultery, he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. There is value and love and then the challenge. He doesn't leave either one of those out. Jesus is truthfully loving, but he's also loving in his truth. Can you be loving without truth? Of course not. If the kid's got his hand on a hot stove ready to put it down, you've gotta say something. At the same time, how you say it changes everything, doesn't it? So we need to be people who are truly loving, but lovingly truthful. He gives them a call to repentance. And then he calls Zacchaeus and says, I want you to come down, verse six. And when Jesus came to the place, he says, Zacchaeus, come down. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. He received him with genuine joy. I want you to imagine what's going on in Zacchaeus' brain in this moment. Everybody else around him despises him. He feels unlovable. He feels like he's gone too far. And Jesus has invited me over for dinner. Jesus invited himself to hang out with me. He wants to get in my space. He knows I'm a mess. He knows that everyone else thinks about me, but he is going to be near me. By the way, it is essential that we make a choice like Zacchaeus. Many of us are proverbially up in a tree right now seeing Jesus, but you've not made the decision whether you're gonna come down and invite him into your house or not. You're there and you're like, you know what? I, I'm not sure I wanna do this. Everyone else around me is gonna murmur and complain. They know I'm a hot mess. I'm not sure I'm ready to come down and let you get in my space, Jesus. But, but we need to repent. Now, maybe you're here and you're banking on the fact that, that Jesus is always gonna take you back. Is that true that God will always take you back? Yes, are we sure? Are you confident in that? Yes. Say it like you're confident. Yes. yes, there we go, I love it. At the same time, you know it's scary to me? I'm not sure that you will always be ready to repent. We always bank on Jesus' faithfulness to us, but guess what? Our hearts can grow cold and hard. As a matter of fact, I love reading stories in the Old Testament where people are rejecting God and rejecting God and rejecting God. God says, let my people go, Pharaoh. He says, no, no, no. Before you know it, his heart is growing 
hard through continued disobedience. Do not bank that you will always have a second chance to cry out to God. God will always give you a second chance, but you may not. Some of y'all are banking on repenting on your deathbeds. Bad idea. For two reasons. Number one, you're gonna miss out on a tough but beautiful journey with Jesus in this life that you're gonna miss out on. And number two, you might not. You might not. On your deathbed, you might be like, you know what, forget you, God. Where were you in my life? And you might be so hard and cold after continued rejection of God. Do not bank on it. I would encourage you, like Zacchaeus, to repent. You see, like Zacchaeus, I was broken. I remember my freshman year in high school, I was a hot mess of a person. I knew all the rules, I knew all the religious actions, I knew the behavior that I needed to act like, but I didn't understand that God loved me individually. It was at a camp when um, it was really dark out, and there was a campfire in the center, and it was a bunch of freshmen all gathered around the speaker. He had a flashlight in one hand and a Bible in the other, and this guy was pacing around the campfire at night. And he told the story of a man who was a leper, a man who was unclean, a man who was an outcast. And he tells the story of a man, and he added a lot of reality that could have been there, potential reality, right? This guy could have had a wife and kids, this guy could have had a job he was working. And then one day he looked down at his finger and he realized that he had cut his arm, a really bad gash, but he hadn't noticed because his skin was slowly starting to die. He had leprosy. Immediately he looks down, his wife looks, makes eye contact with him and tears start streaming down her eyes. She knows it's done. It's over. Their life together is over. He slips out of the house quietly, can't kiss his wife goodbye, can't hug his little girl goodbye. He walks out of the area and he starts shouting unclean because he is now the outcast and his very physical presence is an abomination to people around him. He goes and joins the leper colony. Some are missing their noses, some are missing fingers, and he's an outcast. And one day he looks up and there's a large crowd coming directly to him. And there's a guy with compassion in his eyes in the front of the crowd. And he starts to walk towards him and he starts shouting unclean, unclean, his buddies who are all lepers, but then he shouts, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy. And Jesus walks right to him. The crowd goes around, right? They don't want to be near him. Jesus walks right up to him. He could have yelled, be healed 50 yards away, but instead he walks up and he puts his hand on him, touches him and says, be healed. Jesus touched the outcast. And in that moment, when I was a freshman in high school around a campfire, I knew that God loved me for me that he's not ashamed to call me brother, that he cares for me. And, and, and similar to Zacchaeus, I repented and said, yeah, here's my, my mess. And with joy, I received Jesus. I pray that you've had a moment like that. He pursued Zacchaeus, he pursued Nicodemus, he pursued the woman at the well, and he's pursuing you. I wanna challenge you to welcome him with joy. By the way, should repentance be a big, groveling, sad thing? Not always. It should be a moment of joy coming back to Jesus. You come back to him assuming that he's mad at you or disappointed in you, but guess what? The action of coming back to Jesus is the first positive moment in the whole story. We should repent with joy. We should be like, yes, I'm repenting. Yes, I'm an alcoholic. Yes, I've been watching porn. Yes, I'm angry at my wife. Yes, I'm broken, but I'm changing and I wanna be different in the name of Jesus. Will you take me back? And Jesus comes with open arms. Man, it should be a moment of repentance, the joy of the outcast, and I want a piece of that every single time. Verse seven, and when they, the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
everyone starts to grumble and complain. Imagine the entire crowd grumbling about you. You ever watch a movie or go to a ball game and feel crowd energy? You know what I'm talking about? Let's try it together. Can everyone start clapping for no reason right now? Just clap. Come on, clap some more. All right, good. Can can everyone gasp? We need like cards, don't we? Can everyone like, (gasps) wait, one, two, three, go. Okay, good. Wow, do you feel that? Can everyone boo for a minute? Come on, give me some more. You're really upset, come on. Okay, do do you feel that for real? Now imagine that everyone's booing at you. Ooh, here's Zacchaeus, and he's a sinner. And Jesus is like, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm gonna hang out at your house today. And everyone's like, ooh. And it's loud enough that Luke and other people can hear him complaining about Zacchaeus. He's going to, does he know who that is, that Zacchaeus? He's a tax collector. He is the chief tax collector. Are we sure that Jesus wants to hang out with him? Maybe a little jealousy is in their heart, maybe a little bit of angst, but, but they're angry at the moment of compassion and the crowd starts to get in the way of what Jesus is doing. Now, question, can you sympathize with this crowd at all? I can a little bit. He's a, he's a chief tax collector. Maybe you're like me and you look back at the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s and think, man, that has caused absolute devastation on our world. The identities that are broken, the the faulted relationships, the broken marriages, the exploitation of women and children has devastated our world. And it's really easy to look at a certain group of people and you want to murmur. You want to complain. You want to say that is wrong and it is gross and it is evil. And I tell you what, You might be justified in that, but the question is, is that helpful for the gospel? I would say no. Boldly and confidently, murmuring and complaining is not helpful for the gospel. Maybe you've allowed this to happen for yourself where you've complained about yourself or other people. Look at Philippians 2 says, man, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Is this world twisted and broken? Yes, it is. Is it beneficial for the cause of Christ to murmur and complain? Never. And I'm not saying we compromise on truth. If you're here and you're like, man, you sound like you're just saying we should just go with the flow, forget about voting, forget about like loving our neighbor, speaking truth. I'm not saying any of that at all. I am supremely confident, I'm I'm, I'm a preacher. My profession is to talk to students and say, this is right, this is wrong. Here's what Jesus says is the best way to live. Trust him, obey him. However, I would argue that murmuring and complaining, you are joining the crowd that is getting in the way of Jesus moving. I think some of us are in this crowd this morning and we need to get more like Jesus and less like the crowd. Does Jesus have the capacity to love truthfully and still love people like crazy and make them feel valued? Absolutely. So let's follow our Savior's pattern and lifestyle to be compassionate and not judgmental. To do a little bit less murmuring and a little more praying. To share a few more meals with people who are broken and a little bit of the nasty Facebook comments to go away. Amen? That's gonna bring transformation. As far as I know, in my experience, the transformation of the heart, which is the whole goal of Christianity, begins not with murmuring and complaining, but compassion and love. 
It's through grace that we are saved. It's through kindness that we are transformed. And I think that some Christians here, you're trying to shine as a light in the world, but when you complain, you sound just like the world. When you buy a piece of jewelry, they put it on a black cloth to make that jewelry pop. That black cloth, the dark night sky, that's our world right now. But you wanna shine like a star, a brilliant, beautiful star, refuse to complain, refuse to argue, refuse to be that person, and start leading with compassion. Do you know why it's easy, why people complain? It's way easier to complain than to actually do something about it, isn't it? Christians are not taking the hard route by standing for truth and complaining as keyboard warriors. That's the easy route. The hard route is embracing sin head on, loving your neighbor, getting to know them, hearing their story, and then calling them gently to repentance. That's way tougher. That's way messier. And you have no idea the impact that it can have. I was talking to a friend of mine recently and he was mentioning that he had a senior approach him who every single day would walk by him and he'd say, good morning, good morning, good morning, every single day at school. And um, he didn't know this kid at all. At the end of the school year, the senior walked up to him almost in tears and said, hey, I want you to know that you have changed my life. He says, your little good mornings absolutely made my day. I had a pretty rough challenge and your little touches every single day meant a lot to me. That teacher is almost in tears. He has no idea. This kid's name doesn't know his story, but he knows that he had an impact on a simple, kind, compassionate touch. Isn't that amazing? And that's what a consistent, faithful gospel life can do. Jesus is a standard for how we should live. By the way, would you say that complaining and grumbling is an acceptable sin in our society? I would say it is. I would say there's a lot of sins that are acceptable and we need to kill this. This is evil, wicked, damnable sin. So quit complaining, quit arguing, and let's shine like stars in the universe. Verse eight, what happens? Does Zacchaeus listen to the grumbling crowd or does he obey the call of Jesus? Let's find out. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I want you to contrast this with the rich young ruler just a couple chapters ahead. The rich young ruler, Jesus approached him and said, hey, it's like, how can I get eternal life? Jesus says, give all your money to the poor. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus says, it's nearly impossible for the rich to inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's very, 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 very difficult. But guess what? Zacchaeus just did. Zacchaeus says, I'm gonna live generously by giving away a bunch of money to the poor and I'm gonna live with justice. I'm going to undo the wrongs that I've done through extorting. And so he may continue his job and give legal taxes, but he's no longer going to live where he's hoarding wealth and he's not living justly. He's gonna live with justice and generosity. Can you be a ethical billionaire? Was a question that a student asked me recently. (laughs) That's a good question, right? But then I was like, hold up. Can you be an ethical millionaire? Can you be an ethical person with debt? Can you be an ethical human being navigating money, period? Money's tricky, isn't it? But the truth is, is that if we use it as a tool to feed and fuel Jesus' kingdom of generosity and justice, you can do a lot of good with cash. That's not the point. The love of money is the root of all evil. And here Zacchaeus has had a full-blown repentance. He was a person who hoarded wealth, and now he is the exact opposite. I want you to see this. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Remember Jesus was kind to Zacchaeus? 
Well, Zacchaeus still had a choice, but Romans 2, 4 says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, not the other way around. It's not, man, you better clean yourself up and repent or else God won't be kind to you. It is that God is undoubtedly, completely, truly kind to you. So repent. He's leading you along to repentance. And the biggest problem that we have is that you don't see Jesus as kind and as beautiful and loving. But if you start to see him as one who is for the outcast, your heart will grow soft and he'll lead you to repentance. I'd encourage you just like Zacchaeus to repent. Verse nine, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. So Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, Today, salvation has come to his house. Notice the, the tense change. Jesus is talking to Zacchaeus, but he's really talking to the crowd around him. He says, today, his salvation has come to his house. Salvation came not because of the gift of his wealth. He repented, and the repentance is demonstrated by obedience. Do you see this? And now, now it's really difficult because so often in the New Testament, people repent, then they act repentant and they give and they share and they repent by action, and you might confuse the two. But has salvation come to his house because of his generosity? No, salvation came because he repented, and then the action of obedience is a sign of that repentance. There's a cause and effect, and it's really important we get that right too, that, that they should be tied, that it should be I repent and therefore I live differently. But it, it's so, so, so important. Um, so the question is, what does it mean, though, to be a son of Abraham? Here's what David Guzik has said about this concept. Since Zacchaeus was so hated by his fellow Jews, they probably often said that he wasn't a real Jew. Jesus wanted everyone to know that Zacchaeus really was a son of Abraham, both by genetics, being Jewish, and by faith, because he really, truly, joyfully received Jesus. Everyone else around him and murmur, he's not a real son of Abraham. But Jesus was saying, based upon this repentance, he is a spiritual and genetic son of Abraham. Um, by the way, repentance is visible in two things. His heart change, which is joy, right? He repented joyfully, but then the action change, justice and generosity. There should be a heart change and an action change prompted by, with, uh, with repentance. And with repentance comes the new identity. You are a son of Abraham. I want you to see the steps here. Jesus' kindness led Zacchaeus to repentance. Number two, repentance was visible in his heart change, joy and action change, generosity. And then finally, repentance comes a new identity. He is now officially a son of Abraham. He is a son of God. He is in relationship again with God. It'd be really simple to question that identity. Let's read verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man is simply the Daniel 7 character that we see it's the divine human ascending to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so he, he clearly is saying, I am the divine human. Son of Man is clearly a divine title. But then further he says, I came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus sought Jesus. He sought to see him. He climbed the tree in order to see him. But it turns out that Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus the entire time because he came to seek and to save the lost. This was a divine appointment. And today, believe it or not, Jesus is seeking you. He came to seek the outcasts. Well, I would argue that we aren't what we do 
But what we do, our actions, are a part of our story. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was a wealth-hoarding, repulsive enemy. But then, at the moment of repentance, there is a new identity placed on him. Jesus saw it, but did the crowd see it? Probably not. Do you think they believed that Zacchaeus was really changed at that moment? Probably not. It might have taken him a while. It might have taken him a minute, but, but Jesus saw it and he knew. And the challenge for Zacchaeus now would be to live out of his true identity. And this is the challenge that all of us had. I am justified. I'm declared right with God. I'm a child of God. I'm known and loved and valued. But the problem is, sometimes it's hard to live out of that truthful identity. We can struggle with that. We can still put back the old backpack of guilt and shame on our shoulders and lug it around as if it's ours to bear. Jesus paid for it and it's done. But we can be tempted to carry that around with us, to not listen to the true voice of God. Um, and, and to illustrate this, I wanna tell you a quick story. When I was a spiritual life director at a Christian school in Illinois, we took a class trip to Tennessee every year. And it was so much fun. There is a location called the La Lost Sea, and it's this really cool cave diving area in Tennessee. Um, there's actually an area where there's like, like all these challenges for your group to like get through them without getting stuck. Anybody here claustrophobic? Might wanna not listen to this next part. There's actually an area called the birth canal where you have to climb through this really tiny hole and the people like pull you through. You get stuck at the hips, a little Crisco slides you right through. But you get stuck and you have to do all these navigating these areas. I even asked one of the, the team people there like, hey, is there ever areas that you're allowed to go that we're not allowed to go in the caves? And this lady's like, oh yeah. She's like, on the weekends, we found this really cool tunnel and it juts down at a sharp angle down and it's two and a half feet by two and a half feet. And we crawl down into the earth and there's no moving air down there. And so you can only go so far and you have to go back because if the person behind you passes out, you're stuck. Because you literally have to crawl back uphill backwards in this really tight tunnel. Who would try that? Anybody here just crazy? Anybody here like, no way? <laughs> I'm in the no way group, okay? I'm not generally claustrophobic. Anyway, so we got there and we're hearing the whole pitch in the story and it turns out there's a kid named Ben Sands in 1905 who originally discovered the Lost Sea. It's America's largest underground lake. He was walking along by lantern and he found a cool cave. He goes in it, it's a very tiny cave and there's a puddle in the corner that was normally there. Today the puddle's gone. So he climbs down 300 feet into the earth in this cave by lantern. This is insane. What if it went out? He'd be stuck, it's craziness. But this kid, this 13 year old boy climbs down into the earth discovers this giant lake. He's so excited, he climbs back up again. Mom, dad, everyone, I found a super, really cool cave. And mom and dad are like, yeah, you're crazy, go to bed. Um, it rained, the drought ended, and the water filled back in. And for years, he told everyone about this giant cave that he found, but no one believed him. Because in this little cave opening, all they saw was a puddle at the entrance of the cave. And no one believed that this kid actually found anything worthwhile. Well, it wasn't until he was almost dead. Years later, the cave was discovered, but it wasn't until years later when they tracked down Ben Sands and said, hey, can you describe the cave that you allegedly saw? He described it in vivid detail. And they said, yep, that's what it looks like. You were the original discoverer of this cave. But his entire life, everyone told him he was wrong and crazy. And the problem is the same way with us. We are Christians and we have an identity in Christ, but the world may not recognize it as such. They may murmur and complain, but that doesn't matter. It's who you are. First John 3 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Did the world miss Jesus as a son of God? Yes, 
It's no surprise that it misses you too, but that doesn't make it any less true. You are a son or daughter of the king. In this moment, Jesus declares Zacchaeus' identity. You are no longer the cheating, evil tax collector. You are a son of Abraham. You are a son of God. And you today in this room, you are a child of God if you are a follower of him. Live out of your identity. The same challenge happens in student ministry. I've got students who are middle schoolers and I, I love them. I love them to pieces, but they get stuck in this identity of I'm that sarcastic, bitter, cold one and I'm not the happy, vibrant student that I used to be as a kid because everyone expects it of me and my social society forces me to act a certain way. That's why I love camp because it can totally chop that up and pull them out of that space and give them a fresh chance to say, I'm gonna be who God made me to be and not who everyone expects me to be. The bold step of faith to say, I'm gonna act how I live and who I am is terrifying, but vital to our faith. Zacchaeus had a choice when he was up in the tree and Jesus invited himself over to dinner. Zacchaeus could have either listened to the grumbling crowd about his identity or he could have listened to Jesus. He could have said, I'm gonna keep being who everyone expects me to be or I'm gonna be who Jesus created in me to live in justice, to live with generosity and to stop extorting. My challenge to you today is to repent with joy. Be a true son of Abraham. Many today were at one time an outcast and many of us today are living like the crowd. How can we help Zacchaeus feel welcome in our church is probably the most important question we can ask, isn't it? How can we help reach people? How can we not be the crowd? Here's three tips and three practices to not be the crowd. Number one, remember your own story. You know what really helps with humility? Remembering how messed up we were in the past. Think back to your moment when you were saved. I don't know how messed up you were, but I promise you, you're more messed up than you remember. (laughs) We're really gracious to ourselves. We need Jesus and so does the world. And so remember your own story, number one. Number two, I'd say this, please stop expecting green bananas to be yellow. Instead, expect green bananas to be green. Imagine after this, you do your grocery run, you go to Publix or wherever, and you walk up to the banana produce section and you see in the middle of bright yellow bananas a stinking green banana. And you pluck it out, you walk to the front and say, let me see your general manager. This banana is green. I am upset. I need to experience some, 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 some solution here. What is going on with the green banana? That'd be silliness. But when it comes to life, we expect people to be yellow, ripe bananas right away. A little more close to home with middle schoolers. Do you expect a middle schooler to be immature or mature? They're immature, guess what? Because by definition, they're not mature adults yet. We can expect a middle schooler to be a little bit green because they're by definition not a child or an adult. So what do you do? Do you say, middle schooler, you should be acting like an adult all the time? Of course not. You should say, hey, mom wants you to act like a kid. We can challenge you, we'll encourage you. Sometimes, it's like you're being an idiot. I love you, stop it. But most of the time, when they're a middle schooler, it's like, hey, when you act like a kid, we're gonna grace it over. When you act like an adult, we're gonna praise you and encourage you forward because green bananas are green. And you know what helps bananas ripen is compassion and generosity and love and kindness and truth. And there are some green bananas amongst us in this world. And some of us are expecting green bananas to be ripe, and that is a disservice to the kingdom of God. The crowd was expecting Zacchaeus to be ripe, and he wasn't yet. But you know what helped him become ripe? Jesus. Compassion. Love. So my encouragement would be, number two, start having an attitude. Expect green bananas to be green, but then do your part in helping ripen 
to help get out of the way of Jesus. The crowd got in the way of Jesus. Don't be the crowd. Number three, I'd say this. This is very helpful. Start the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. Like, that's kind of out of left field. What does that have to do with it? I find that when I'm struggling with knowing my identity as a son of God, it's moments when I quiet myself with a pen and paper and I do my devotions and I listen and I just let God speak that I can quiet the voices of everyone around me and I can quiet my own self-critical voice and I can hear the voice of God saying, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. And I think that we need to become better at deafening out the noise around us. You wonder why you can't hear God? You've got Netflix and your iPhone and you've got a million different things going on. There are moments when I'll be watching TV, playing a game on my phone while texting someone. Guess what? I am overwhelmed with noise. And you wonder why I can't hear God in my life. Silence and solitude, like Jesus alone on a mountaintop praying, is a great moment to step away from the world and hear the voice of God. And what happens is this. You begin to hear that you are loved and well-pleased. When Simba was on the run, figuring out his identity in the Lion King, what did he hear? In the wilderness, he heard Mufasa's voice in the sky saying, you are my son. Why are you running? You are my son. And in a very similar direct way, God is today calling you a son or daughter. Why are you running? Why are you running? And so I believe in decision moments. And so what I wanna do is ask everyone just now for a moment to close your eyes out of respect for everybody else. I'm gonna ask three questions. And if you have a yes to any of these questions, I'm gonna ask you just gently to put your hand up as a moment of repentance to the Lord. Um, Number one, if you are part of the crowd, if you're an obstacle to others, if you've been judging green bananas, if you want to live the mercy and grace of Jesus and you're tired of being a crowd person and you wanna be a grace and compassion person, I want you to raise your hand and say, I repent, I wanna be different. Praise God, awesome. Before the Lord, this is you and the Lord. Awesome, you can put your hands down. Number two, if you've been living out of your identity um, of what people say about you, and you've not listened to the voice of truth, the voice of Jesus saying that you were loved and you were a a son or daughter of God, and you want to, to reaffirm that today and say, I repent of a false identity, I want you to, to show me that. If that's you, raise your hand for me and say, I know I'm a son or daughter of God and I wanna believe that more truly than ever. Praise God, awesome. You can put your hands down. Number three, if you are honest and you're like, actually, I'm Zacchaeus in the story. I'm not the crowd. I'm not Jesus, I'm certainly the outcast, I'm broken, I've got a history, and I need to change and repent and experience the grace of Jesus, and you wanna experience that today, would you raise your hand for me? Praise God, awesome, awesome. If you're here today and you are in any one of those situations and you wanna talk to someone, I would challenge you and beg you to please come talk to someone. We're gonna have our ministry team down front in just a second, and I want you to be bold enough to say, I'm gonna talk and share these challenges. You, you're not meant to carry this alone. If you're wrestling with an identity thing, the first thing you can do is say, hey, I need to affirm my identity. Have someone pray over you, your identity. If you're here and you're the outcast, experience compassion of Jesus right now. And if you're here and you're the crowd and you wanna change, experience the compassion of Jesus right now. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for your mercy and your grace. I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to experience that more fully than ever today. I pray that we will run to you and not from you, that we'll stop seeking you just for your benefits, but to start seeking you because you are worth it. God, we are challenged by your compassion. I pray that we'll become the most compassionate church we could possibly be. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen. All right, guys, love you. Thank you so much. Pastor Tiago. Tiago.